Well, the Buddha is the enlightened one. And prayers can be offered to him by Buddhists for assistance in life. Um, maybe this is why I bought my first Buddha when I was 14 years old. I went God shopping, as it were. I remember this very clearly. I was at the, the flea market at Magnolia Dell in Pretoria, South Africa, and there was a little table that um, had a, a whole array of different Buddhas, little tiny ones. And uh, what was special about this is that they looked like they were made from genuine burnished bronze, but actually they were candles. And so they'd been painted to look like little Buddhas. And I don't know why my parents thought this was okay. It's not a very good Catholic thing to do as I grew up, but I just fell in love with this little fat, chubby, smiling guy with a wick of hair that came out, and I had to have him. So I bought this little, I don't know, like four-inch Buddha, and um, I couldn't wait to add to my collection. And uh, on the first Saturday of every month, Magnolia Dell would have this flea market, and I would go and find the candle table, and I would save up some of my pocket money, and I would go and buy another little god to add to my collection. And I had, in my room, I had a crucifix, as a good Catholic boy did, but then I also had this little pantheon of Buddha statuettes, which I would never would like, because that would be disrespectful and expensive. Um, but I had them, and I just kept them as collector's items. And it wasn't until years later, after I'd moved off uh, to seminary and, you know, got my degree and wanted to become a pastor. Uh, my mom pointed out to me that all these years she had been storing a whole lot of junk from my room and from my childhood, and what should I do with it? And part of that was this little group of Buddhists that I had in a box. And so I told her, whatever you do, do not ship them to me. I do not know if the Master Seminary will allow me to keep my degree if they also know that I have a bunch of gods in my office. And so I kind of got over that and had forgotten about them. Um, but this is pop Buddhism. Traditional Buddhists would consider that very disrespectful to reduce their god to a candle. Um, and yet they also have strange rules about what you're allowed to do. Uh, for example, the, the Tian Tan Buddha in Hong Kong was constructed between 1990 in 1993, it cost an estimated $68 million. It was formed out of 202 separate pieces of bronze. And in addition to the exterior components, there was a steel framework inside in order to resist wind pressure so that the god wouldn't topple over, uh, feat of engineering. The MTR Corporation had issued its first tourist souvenir ticket. So when you go there, you can get a picture of this god on your little ticket that become, became a collector's item. Um, the Buddha is open to the public between 10 a.m. and 5.45 p.m., and it costs 23 Hong Kong dollars to go and see it um, for access to the Buddha. But for that, you also get a vegetarian meal. $60 gets you the deluxe vegetarian meal, which I don't know what, how you make a vegetarian meal deluxe. But anyway, um, and all the visitors who go, they get a little souvenir card with a picture of the Buddha on it, which they can um, venerate and pray to or pray through. And my point is just simply, you, when you have a religion and you're building a god from scratch, uh, you're kind of in control of what you can do with it. I wonder if Buddha were a real god, what he would think about uh, his people giving access for a fee at a certain time of the day. I wonder what he would think of his people reducing him to uh, the size of a postcard. 
And for that matter, I wonder what he thinks of people um, making kind of a chubby version of him as a candle and selling it to 14-year-olds. But before we shake our heads at the folly of idolaters, we need to deal with an embarrassing chapter in the Bible. This is an embarrassing chapter in Israel's history that makes sense if you understand the book of Judges. So turn your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, chapter 17. I told you this morning, this is a part of Scripture that not many people have heard a sermon about. Um, John Herkus in his book, God is God, says, In all my life so far, I have never heard a single reference from pulpit or songwriter or study leader or anybody else at all, never one single tiny whispered sound that related to the Micah of the book of Judges. We hope that we can put an end to that losing streak, that at least there's one congregation that's going to hear a whole sermon on Micah from the book of Judges. Carl Gutbrod said uh, that the reason for this obscurity is that, quote, the story is so crazy, so mixed up, that obviously the parsons and clerics are too embarrassed by it, unquote. Well, you know me better than that. I'm not embarrassed by scripture. Uh, I think it makes perfect sense. I think the narrator has included it here for a very specific reason that really um, uh, marks a turning point in the book of Judges. And without the story, you would understand the book of Judges and scripture less well. And so I hope that you can really master what's going on in this. This is a very pertinent passage for us who live in the 21st century. It's, it's almost more relevant to us than it was to believers in former periods because we live in a time where postmodernism is accepted. Postmodernism is the idea that there's no absolute truth and that what you think is true can be right for you and wrong for someone else and that different people can have conflicting truths. And we see that and the consequences of that every single day in the news and what's happening in our society. So this is a very pertinent, relevant chapter for us, and we're going to see, learn some lessons from it. So I want you to remember just the context here, the downward spiral of judges, how they keep going further and further away from what God wants, and they don't know what God wants, so they kind of do whatever's right in their own eyes. And that's the verse that says that is in our text tonight. And each time God hands them over to uh, foreign invaders that then punish them until they cry out for repentance. And then God raises up a single deliverer to show that the deliverance is coming from God and not from them. And that deliverer drives out the oppressor or usually leads an army to drive out the oppressors. And then they go back to their sin after a while and then he punishes them again. They call out again. And each time the period of them waiting before they call out to him gets longer the period of them worshiping him faithfully before they go back to their idols gets shorter. And so it's kind of this corkscrew motion right down into moral and spiritual darkness. Now, there are three major sections in Judges, and each one gets progressively worse. And this is the moment in chapter 17 where we've ended with Samson. Samson was the last judge. Now, even though it's still called the book of Judges, there are no more judges. We've moved into the third and final movement of the book. And this is where everything just goes haywire. You think it's been bad until now? You ain't seen nothing yet. It is about to get extremely dark. Uh, If this were made into a movie, your children would not be allowed to watch it unless you let them watch like Chainsaw Massacre movies, which you shouldn't. Um, And so that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks. And this story is the kind of the the nudge over the cliff into that darkness. And that's why it's here, to show us what happens 
when you make up your own religion and think that it's true, despite what God says. Okay, so we're going to look at two marks of self-made religion tonight. Two marks of self-made religion. The first mark is it relies on isolated scriptures. And the second mark is that it results in false assurance. So two marks of self-made religion. The first mark is that it relies on isolated scriptures to build that religion. And secondly, it results in false assurance. I'll give those two again after we read the first six verses. And we'll cover the whole chapter tonight, but the first six to get us started. Judges 17.1, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by Yahweh. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Until there, we've, we've been calling this series Desperate Times. Desperate times call for desperate measures, which is what we've seen with the judges doing what they do to deliver Israel, resorting to all kinds of violence in absolute desperation. And now we see people getting even more desperate. And these truly become desperate times. And, and the, the theme verse of the whole book of Proverbs is, I mean, the whole book of Judges, is Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no leader. There was no one telling people that they're wrong and they should stop it. And so everyone just does what's right to them. So we're going to see the two marks of a self-made religion. And the first one is self-made religion relies on isolated scriptures. So in verse 1, we meet this man, the man of the hill country of Ephraim. His name is Micah. This is, please, not to be confused with the prophet Micah. The prophet Micah that writes the book um, later on, one of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, he's also, there's another Micah usually written without an H, that we will meet later on. This is, this is the only time this Micah shows up. And aptly, the, the name Micah means, uh, who, is a, who is God? Me? Yah. Who is Yahweh? And that's interesting because this guy doesn't seem to know. He is a rich kid. He is a mama's boy, living at home, having his mom do his laundry. Um, they are very, very wealthy. But he decides to steal money from his own mother. This is the guy we're talking about. So he steals this money. His mother pronounces a curse over him. Oh, well, not over him, over whoever stole the money. So he steals the money from his mom, this 1,100 pieces of silver, an enormous fortune, making them probably one of the wealthiest people around. Steals all of that, and then she pronounces a curse over whoever took my money. So Micah is superstitious. 
He's not a little stitious. He's superstitious. <laughs> and he feels, okay, well, now there's this curse hanging over my head. I, I got to give the money back. And so he decides to come clean. And so he comes to his mom and he confesses. You know that 1,100 1, pieces of silver that you keep fretting over because those people stole it? You know, our whole family fortune turns out. Turns out I've got it. It was me. And so he confesses his sin. And instead of spanking him like she should, she says, blessed be my son by Yahweh. And so she now pronounces a blessing over his son. And I, I empathize with this because, you know, no matter what your kids have done wrong, when they come back and they're repentant and they confess and they actually give back the money they stole or whatever, you want to encourage that. And so here she wants to counteract the curse by pronouncing a blessing. And you say, is this is this taught in scripture how to curse and bless? No, they're just making stuff up at this point, but let's go with it. And he restores this in verse 3, which is what Leviticus says he should do. So that's the right thing. The Bible does say confess your sin. It does say if you steal, you should give it back. It does say that you should forgive. So, so far, so good. Kind of. But then in verse 3, she dedicates this. She says, I dedicate the silver to Yahweh from my hand for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. And you kind of hear the record player go, you know, what? How is this what Yahweh wants? And so she takes a portion of this, 200 pieces of it in verse 4, and she gives it to a silversmith, because, you know, if you're going to make a god, you want somebody who knows what they're doing. And she hires this god maker to make some household idols and a shrine, and Micah puts this in his house. Um... Now, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4 specifically says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth, and you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So the Bible specifically said, don't try to make God into something that you can see and that you can move around and that can topple over when the wind blows. I don't want that. And yet this is exactly what he's done here. This Israelite, Michael, and his mom, they're using biblical vocabulary in the same sentence as breaking the most basic commandment, don't make an idol. Do not worship idols. That's like the most basic Jewish commandment. And they're, they're doing this while praising Yahweh. And you've got to be saying, what, what was she thinking? What was Micah thinking? I mean, he... He not only has these household gods now, he builds a shrine. So a shrine is like a temple, but it's in your house. It's like your own personal temple. That's what a shrine is. And so he has a little temple in his house, and he has his little gods. And then he says, well, you know, if you have a temple and you have gods, you need, well, you need a priest. So I know, I'm just going to ordain one of my sons. And he, it says he just ordains his son. Does the Bible say you can? No, 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 you're missing the point. He's making up his own homemade religion. And so he needs a priest and a shrine and gods, and he ordains his son. But deep down inside, he's got to think, this, this is a little bit fake. I mean, I know my boy, he's no priest. But anyway, he gets it going and uh, gets some momentum there. And while you're thinking, what is going on here in Israel? Verse 6 tells us. In those days, there's no king in Israel. There's, there's nobody enforcing the law. There's nobody leading. There's nobody calling people to Yahweh's standard. And everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes. You want this religion? You want to patch together your own religion? Go for it. Relativity. Postmodernism. We live in a world where we, 
you know, we encourage children's self-esteem. Everybody gets a trophy for playing. You know, if a high school boy feels like he's actually a girl, well, then the schools let him use the girls' bathroom. He can run the girls' races. Why? Because, well, to him, he, he feels like he's a girl. And, and everyone's just kind of like the lawmakers, the doctors, you know, like the smart people that run the show. They're like, what's wrong with that? He thinks he's a girl. And that's misgendering. She knows she's a girl with an Adam's apple who shaves her face. And that's okay. And the rest of the world is like, really? And everyone's like, yeah, the smart people say so. Okay. That's postmodernism. Everyone's just doing whatever's right in their own eyes. There's no absolute. There's no right or wrong. There's no blood test you can take to figure out if you're a boy or a girl. There's simpler ways to figure that out, but we won't go into that. But whatever you decide for yourself, this is a, a self-made religion. And people do this today with their faith, where they cut and paste pieces of religion, they stick them together, and they make their own homemade brew, like a kitty's collage, a patchwork of theology. And so this is what self-made religion does. They'll take some of the Bible and they'll build a religion off of it. You see, that's what he's doing. He's not just I mean, making this out of whole cloth. He's still using Yahweh's name and there's you know, confession and forgiveness and he needs a priest. And so there's a little bit of Yahwehism in there. And then there's this other stuff, this silversmith and, and his son. The priest has to be a Levite, but he, he doesn't have a Levite, so he just makes his son an Ephraimite a priest. And this is what cults do. Cults will take, they'll say, we believe the New Testament, and then they'll just add stuff to the New Testament. So Mormons say, we believe the whole New Testament. We're Christians. They'll call themselves Christians. They call themselves the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. But then they also have the writings of Joseph Smith that adds all sorts of strange things that they also believe, like uh, Jesus was Satan's brother and that they're both created beings, and yes, they're gods, but you're also going to be a god. There's not just one god and things like that. Well, Satan is in the Bible and Jesus is in the Bible, and so we, we hold to that, but then we add this other stuff. And they have missionaries and, you know, they have church services like we do, they go to temple, and, and they just kind of patchwork up their own religion and call it Christianity. Jehovah's Witnesses also say they believe the Old and New Testament, but then they add the writings of C.T. Russell. And they have all sorts of other strange beliefs. There's no such thing as hell. Nobody goes to hell. Um, only 144,000 people go to heaven. These are verses in the Bible that talk about 144,000 people, but then they, they kind of take it out of context and build a religion off little pieces of the Bible. And they don't take it all together. And remember, I've taught you. That's why we teach you theology. Theology is being able to look at one verse of the Bible and have the whole Bible in mind when you read it. You don't just isolate it. Otherwise, you end up building your own religion off these little texts. A couple Wednesday nights ago, we learned about the snake handlers of Appalachia. They build a whole part of their religion. They take most of the New Testament, and then they add on this thing. If you have faith, you won't die if a snake bites you. So prove that by picking up a rattlesnake. And then, of course, you die, and it's like, well, he didn't have enough faith. And yes, there's a verse in the Bible that says that um, I've given you uh, power over these scorpions and serpents, and if you tread on them, they won't harm you. And so we looked in context of what that was talking about. Jesus is talking about demons and demonic 
um, power and then he talks about demons and demonic power afterwards and in the middle he talks about these serpents and, and scorpions obviously he's using that as a metaphor of demonic power but they didn't do that they didn't keep the other passages in mind they just looked at the one. Ooh, there's the word snake let's let's pass one around and see what happens you know you don't want to do that make up your own religion jews believe and affirm the entire old testament but they chop off the new testament Catholics affirm the whole Bible, but then they also add the teachings of the Pope, some of which at times will contradict the Bible, and then you go with what the Pope says. In Leviticus 10, verse 1 and 2, Nadab and Abihu offered incense to the Lord. They did almost everything right, but they used the wrong incense, and God burns them with fire, rejects their offering. He rejected their self-styled worship. So you might say, but isn't some Bible better than none? Isn't at least better to be, you know, reading your Bible, applying some of your Bible? Maybe who can apply the whole Bible? Who can keep the whole Bible? I'm just going to do some of it. Well, the Bible tells us that God's not happy with that. That is self-styled worship. Colossians chapter 2, verse 20. Colossians 2.20, Paul says, Why, if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to that all, uh, things that all perish when they're used. According to human precepts and teachings. So he has these rules and regulations according to human precepts and teachings. And then he says, These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism. That means when you hurt yourself. And severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Colossians 2 is a very important passage in, in chapter 20 because he, Paul is rebuking the Colossians for believing in Christianity, but then adding rules that are not in the Bible. Certain rules about you keep all the Christian rules, but then you also don't touch this, don't handle that. You, know, you can't eat this, you can't drink that. And these are according to human precepts and teachings. In other words, they're not biblical. They're added by people who come up with these rules. And then he says they have the appearance of wisdom. Let me tell you something. Legalistic rules in churches always look like they're trying to make the people more holy, which is what everybody wants. They have an appearance of wisdom. It sounds wise. But what's happening is, he says, it's promoting self-made religion. And it's of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So what this looks like in Christian churches, even good, solid Bible teaching churches, is that they teach the whole Bible, but then usually it's the pastor or the elders or sometimes a culture of people in the church who have been there a long time. And they have a standard that they add to what the Bible says that becomes treated like it's a rule in the Bible. So let me just say this. It's perfectly okay for any of you to make any rule you want for yourself if you think it's wise in keeping you pure, keeping you from not sinning. So, for example, you might make a rule for yourself where you say, I want to read one chapter of the Bible every day. I know myself, and if I go one day without doing that, I'll just stop reading the Bible, and I know that I need it, and I'm going to have that discipline. And that's fantastic. But you can't have that rule for everyone in the church because that's not a rule in the Bible. You can make a rule for yourself and say, you know, I'm just going to decide for myself. As for me and my household, we're not going to touch alcohol. We're just not going to have it at all. 
because I've seen what it can do to society and I've got alcoholism in my family and I don't want to offend other people. Whatever your reason is, and that's a very good and helpful and wise rule, but you can't make it a rule for everyone in the church because it's not a rule in the Bible. You can make rules about food. You can make rules about godliness, about church attendance, about what people wear. You can make all those rules for yourself. But as soon as you make it part of your religion, it is condemned in Scripture. You may not do that. Some religions, some Christian denominations even add the rule that if you are uh, a spiritual leader, you cannot get married. And Paul calls that in 1 Timothy, doctrines of demons who teach the abstinence of marriage and food, certain foods and drinks. So there's a, a, there's a cool story where, you know, my preaching hero is Charles Spurgeon, lived in the 1800s, and he had this, this big church, and Charles Spurgeon had this weird little thing that wasn't very well accepted in Baptist circles. Presbyterians don't care, but the Baptists, and that is that he smoked cigars. And his congregation knew that he smoked cigars, but it was still frowned upon in society and in his church. And there was a, an American preacher, uh, Dwight Pentecost, who came to visit. And he didn't know that Spurgeon, well, we assume he didn't know that Spurgeon smoked cigars. And he was asked to preach the sermon that day. So he preaches a sermon on why people shouldn't smoke cigars. And the whole church, you can imagine, the whole church is just looking at Spurgeon. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? What's he going to say? And you would think Spurgeon's like, oh man, you know, but then you don't know Spurgeon. So after Pentecost preaches this whole sermon about holiness and pleasing the Lord and keeps using cigars as an example of, you know, of course you shouldn't do that. He sits down and Spurgeon gets up as the pastor of the church, and I bet you you could have heard a pin drop that day. What's he going to say? And he was very, very jovial and very polite, but he, says, he said to his guest, um, you know, sir, it takes everything. The Bible has ten commandments, he says. It takes everything in me to keep the ten commandments, so I certainly won't add an eleventh. <laughs> and then he preached a little sermon undoing what the guest just said, explaining that it's very good for you not to drink, to smoke cigars, but you can't make it a rule for other people because it's not a rule in the Bible. Um, I don't know what I think about that story, except I just love Spurgeon, so I think it's kind of charming that he said that. But the principle is right. The principle of you can't, the, the Bible tells us what's right. When you start adding rules and you make that a sign of holiness, you're creating a different religion. I've told you about a, a lady that I know who said that she used to never drink um, wine until one day she had a dream. She was asleep and she had this dream that she was at the marriage feast of the Lamb and the Lord was serving the table as Revelation says he will. And when he came to her to top up her wine, she said, no, I don't drink. Like, <laughs> like she's more holy than everyone in heaven, including Jesus. And she woke up and she was like, oh my goodness. You know, She's realized what has become that she's actually created a standard that she thinks of as holy that Jesus himself didn't even keep. And so we need to be careful of those things. Galatians 1.6, Paul said, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There were people coming telling the Galatians, yes, everything about the grace by faith is right, but you also have to keep these certain rules. Paul says that's a different gospel. And so the problem with this 
is that it's all based off little snippets of scripture. You say, you say, well, where do people come up with these verses? And they'll say, well, the Bible says your body is a temple. And so you, you don't want to smoke up the temple, so you can't smoke. Or the Bible says, um, you know, do not get drunk with wine. And so because of that, you shouldn't drink any alcohol because you might get close to the line where you then are breaking Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine. And so it's not born out of a desire to be mean or evil. It's born out of a desire to be holy and please God. And that's why it's okay for you to do it for yourself. You just can't make it part of your religion. Why? Because it's not in the Bible. So many churches today boldly proclaim the name of Christ on their signs and their banners, but they have a mixed truth and a home-brewed religion. You have churches that have women pastors. Well, that's one of the first signs because that's a very controversial issue in our day and age. And so people are like, well, if we can just ignore 1 Timothy 2, if we can just ignore 1 Corinthians 11, and the passages there that specifically say women cannot be pastors, uh, 1 Timothy 3 as well, the qualification, Titus chapter 2, uh, if you just ignore those things, then you can have women pastors. Yes, but then you don't have the religion of the Bible. You might get more people in your church, but if those people study their Bibles closely, they're going to start getting confused as to which parts you should keep and which parts you can ignore. And so false religion relies on isolated scripture. By the way, if you ever move to another town or whatever and you're looking for a church, there's a, a few questions I can give you to ask so that you can diagnose what the church views about the Bible. But the first question, this is an easy one to remember, is to ask the leadership of the church, do they ever practice church discipline? Church discipline is a practice of churches taught in Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5. It is the hardest thing to do in a church. And that is, uh, I won't get into what church discipline is, but basically, don't join a church that won't kick you out if you're not living like a Christian. And that's the first thing to go. So, false religion relies on isolated scripture, but there's another problem with false religion. It results in false assurance. Look at verse 7 to 13. The story goes on. So we've got the story now of this Micah and his family priest. You know, his son is the priest. Now look what happens. Remember that priests have to be from the tribe of Levi. So verse 7, now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim and to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? He said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I can find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest. He means a spiritual father and a priest. And I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite. And the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Isn't that interesting? Here Micah's self-styled religion gets an upgrade. 
The one little problem with his shrine and his idols at home is that his own son is the priest that he just ordained him. One day a Levite comes by and he's like, if I get a Levite, now it's way more legitimate because the whole Old Testament talks about how only Levites can be priests. God understands I didn't have a Levite, but now I do. I'll pay you handsomely. You get a clothing allowance, board and lodging. Come and be my own personal priest. And he's like, uh, priests kind of need a temple. or a, uh, I got one of those. The shed in the back. That's our shrine. Come, let me show you the gods. You can imagine the priest being like, I don't know about, um, how much did you say you were paying? Oh, 10 shekels and a shirt. I'm in. And, and he, he sells his soul for this money. Now, let me ask you, does adding a Levite priest to your little homebrew make it legitimate? No. Did you know that 99% of rat poison is good food? That's why the rat eats it. It's that one little percent that kills the rat. You can have 99% good religion, but you inject 1% of error that disobeys the word of God, and you have spiritual poison. And the problem with that is it creates a false assurance because you focus so much on the 99% that's right that you forget that you actually have a false religion. And so you think you're fine. And that's why in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, there will be many who say to me on that day, the day of judgment, what? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty deeds in your name? And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. So Jesus calls them workers of lawlessness. In other words, they're breaking the law of God. They're listing the things that they're doing that should please Jesus. But they're missing the essence of the religion. It makes it false. And they have a false assurance. They're calling him Lord on Judgment Day. And he says, I don't know you. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? To find that your whole life, you've placed your faith in something that's not the right religion? thinking that you're fine on Judgment Day, only to hear from Jesus that you picked the wrong horse to back? So remember that the Levites are a tribe that didn't have their own land. They were to sojourn among the other tribes and live there and be supported by the other tribes so that they could lead people to Yahweh, so that they could be a spiritual presence representing the tabernacle and later the temple in Jerusalem. This guy is doing the exact opposite. He is calling this Yahweh religion, but he's being a priest for an idol. And he knows better than that. But he gets a promotion and a priesthood and, you know, a new business card and title on the door and a plump salary and a, a generous clothing allowance and all for the meager price of his soul. Selling out the God that he was called to serve for this prestige and this money. This is superstition. Look at verse 13. Micah said, Now I know that Yahweh will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. It's kind of this understanding that if you've got this holy person on your side, God overlooks everything else. People still kind of have that idea, even sometimes 
in Baptist circles, I've had somebody approach me and ask me to bless their car. Could you please come? I got a new car. Can you please come and bless it? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, at my previous church, when I got a car, when somebody got a car, the pastor would come and bless the car. And I was like, you want me to pray that it gets like efficient mileage? Or, I mean, what are, what are we doing here? You know, that it won't get a flat tire? I mean, I didn't say that. I was like, what, what is this going to accomplish, making the car holy? And he was like, I don't know. My pastor did that. He blessed the cars. So I said, well, I will pray for you that you are a safe driver and that you obey the laws of the road. And we can do it next to the car. Or we could do it right here. We don't need the car. And he was like struggling with this concept. And I just tried to explain to him. It's like, there's nothing I can do for you that any other Christian can't do for you. And that's just pray that you obey God. Like, I, so I prayed for him right then and there that God would help him be a safe driver and that he would use the car to God's glory. I mean, what you going to do? I've been asked to come and bless businesses. Um, I've been asked to bless stuff. I mean... I pray for people if they ask me to. No problem. I can pray for anything you want. But, but it doesn't have to be me. You understand that, right? It's like, I'm not a priest. I, I don't have any special, anything that no other, you can pray for your car. You know, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, this guy, he's a God of priests, so now he's going to be fine. He's, he's got his little superstitious thing going on. Now, bear in mind, he's a thief. He's an idolater. He's a purveyor of false religion. But look, Lord, my Levite. And don't you do that too sometimes where you've got some sin in your life, some unrepentant thing that you're doing that's, that's, that's just part of your life, but you're like, look, Lord, my Levite. And your Levite is, I go to a good church, or I put money in the offering, or um, I, I serve on, on this, or I do that, or I've been on missions trips, or look, Lord, my Levite. I mean, I know I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, but at least I go to a good church. Like the one balances the other one out. Now I know the Lord will prosper me because I'm doing this great thing. I'm supporting this great missionary who's doing this great work. I mean, I know that I'm, I do these other things I shouldn't be doing, but look, Lord, my Levite. Sometimes uh, this has happened in my ministry where couples will ask me to do their wedding, and I say, well, I don't, you know, if people in my church want a wedding, of course I'll do it, but these are people who don't have a pastor. So then I'll say to them, well, why are you asking me? Why don't you go and ask your pastor? It's like, oh, we don't go to church. So then I'll say, my next question is always, why do you want a wedding in a church with a pastor doing it? You know, you can go and get this done at the courthouse. And then they say, oh, no, 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 we want a religious wedding. We want a religious ceremony. And then it takes everything in me to not say, why? You're not religious. If you're not religious enough to have your own pastor and your own church, then having me there is not going to help this marriage. It's really not. Now, I'll marry two unbelievers if I get to do premarital with them. It's the one thing that they're doing in their life that's right is trying to please God in that one area. But I'm not going to let them think that doing it in a church is going to sprinkle some magic blessing on it. That's superstitious. It doesn't help where you get married. So the reason we do what we do our religiosity, you might call it, was what the world looks at it as. The reason we come to church, the reason we give, the reason we serve, the reason we, we pray and we sing, and this is because we love the Lord. 
Not because we're trying to get something from him. Not because we're trying to like, look, Lord, my Levite. Like we do this stuff because it comes from our heart. Doing the right thing without the right heart is a self-made religion. Doing the right thing without the right heart is a self-made religion because it's not what God wants. Did I desire sacrifice? No, I desired obedience, he says. Did I desire the blood of bull and rams? No, I, I desired compassion. Hosea 6 verse 6. I didn't want circumcision. I wanted a circumcision of the heart. I wanted you to mean it. So sometimes Christians get into this habit of like they've got their rules and they've got their check boxes and they're doing what the Bible says that they should do and so they feel like, oh, what, Lord? This is my Levite. Look at my Levite. I've got, I got the right stuff going. But they don't, they don't have a heart for the Lord. They don't love him. They're not doing it because they love him. They're doing it because they're trying to earn something. And it's hard, to, it's hard to shepherd people like that because technically they're not doing anything wrong. And so it's, it's like when the... When the elders hired me, I have a contract that says that I have, you know, 20 days, I think it is, leave per year. So in the contract, it doesn't say, there's no limits on how I use that 20 days. I can take them whenever I want. It actually says that the leave from the previous year, if I don't use it, spills over into the next year. It carries over. So I think I have like, I don't know, 40 days or so leave <laughs> over the, the years I haven't taken all my leave since I've been here, any year that I've been here. So imagine I, I said, you know, I'm going to take all 40 days this year, and I'm going to take them once a week on a Sunday. I'm just going to take one day off a week. It's going to be on Sunday for the next 40 weeks. The elders are like, we're going to have to look at that contract on Monday, aren't we? <laughs> Now, I don't think there's anything they could do about that, technically. But would I do that? Some of you are like, I don't know, would you? <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I'm not going to go most of the year without preaching because that's missing the point of the leave. The leave is there so that you can take some time off, so you can be refreshed, so you can come back and preach. Not so that you can use it in such a way that you don't do the very thing that you've been called to do. It's missing the whole point. It shows a character problem when people do stuff like that. And that's what's going on with a lot of people's religion is they're like, well, technically, I mean, I go to church once a week, three times a month. The Bible doesn't say you have to go every single week. It doesn't say you have to be at evening service. I know I'm preaching in the choir here. It doesn't say you have to be at Wednesday. I know, it doesn't say any of that. Congratulations. Yay, yay, you're gathering together like the Bible says. Where are you the rest of the time? What is it that's keeping you from gathering with the saints? You're not, I mean, I know you. You're not here on a Sunday night because you have to be. You're not checking some box. You're here because you want to be. And not everybody can, and I'm not saying, I'm not going to make a rule. Remember point number one. Don't make a rule about this stuff. I'm not going to make a rule for anybody else. My question just simply is like, why are you here? Why are you not here? What is, what's in the heart? That's what the Lord wants. Well, technically, where in the Bible does it say? No, that's not what we're talking about right now. What do you want? And so when we make up legalistic rules and assume that the extra we do balances out the rest, we're kind of missing the point of the, the whole worship. And the thing is that it gives you false assurance because you're keeping the one thing that helps you feel like you're keeping the rest. And you're not. So there was this, this lady. She came to our church a few times when I first got here. 
and she, she always wore a head covering. That comes from 1 Corinthians 11. It talks about women wearing head coverings as a sign of submission to their husband's authority, right? I don't have any problem with that. I, I think in our culture, it works if you wear a wedding ring. You show that you're under your, your husband's authority with a wedding ring. But if you want to wear a head covering for that purpose, that's fine. Anyway, so she came for a few weeks. So then the one day, it's my installation service, and we have Dr. Steve Lawson's here doing the sermon. And she comes that day with an envelope of articles she wants him to read before he does the sermon to install me as the pastor here on some point of doctrine of mine that she doesn't agree with. Asking him to not do the service for me. So she's going around the authority of the elders that have called me to be the pastor. She's going around the authority of the congregation, going directly to the guest speaker. It's not like Steve Lawson's the godfather of Baptist churches or anything, but anyway, she goes to him and wants him to shut this whole thing down so that I don't become the pastor. So you got to love Dr. Lawson. He's like, yeah, and just hands it to me. <laughs> Doesn't even look at it. Um, and so we have the whole service or whatever, and he preaches what I consider his best sermon ever. And then afterwards, I go out, and she's in the lobby. And so I go to her, and I, I, I felt the Holy Spirit restraining me at that point. See, have you ever get that where you, like your flesh is saying, okay, let's sick him, and the Spirit's like saying, no. Didn't you just hear the sermon that was preached at you in the front row? Okay. So I felt the spirit. I mean, you know, your mind's racing. Like, you want to go and say to her, ha-ha, he didn't even look at it. Or like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, I thought of that after. But um, when I finally got to her, I mean, I just, I felt, I felt compassion for her. And the, what came to me to ask her is I said to her, where's your husband? I don't know what made me think to ask that, but she has a head covering. So I knew that she knows what I'm talking about. Where's your husband? And at least she was honest enough to say, he doesn't agree with what I'm doing. So I said, right. And I left it at that, and she's never come back. But, but think about that. In the chapter that tells you to wear a head covering to show your submission to your husband, it tells you women are to be silent in churches, not to cause trouble in churches, and to ask their husbands at home what to do. She's got the head covering, but she's not listening to the rest of that chapter. Not one little bit. She's completely circumvented her husband's authority. The man doesn't even, didn't even come. He's probably embarrassed by what she was going to do. Who knows? Doesn't agree with what she's doing. She's not submitting to her husband, but she's got the head covering, so makes it all good. Friends, you do that too. So do I. What's your head covering? What's your Levite? Something that you do that if somebody asks you, how do you know that you're being a faithful Christian, you would point to that and say, this is what I do. Meanwhile, in your heart, you know there's a whole bunch of stuff that you're not doing. Same Bible. I think that the challenge here of this Levite, Micah's Levite, is to remind us to, to not cut and paste what we do. Read the Word of God. When the Spirit impresses upon you that conviction that you're reading something like, this is something I need to work on, work on it. Work on it. Don't take pride in the stuff you're doing right. Move on to the stuff that He's still going to work in you. But remember this. It's not your working on your sin that's going to make you right with God anyway. 
you're going to work on those things out of response, out of love for your Savior who did all of this perfectly for you. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we love the Lord, because he lived for us and he died for us, as we heard today, taking communion. And he gave his body and his righteousness as atonement for your sin and mine. And it's because he died for us and because he rose again and because he has caused us to be born again and because he has infused us with his spirit that indwells us and leads us into righteousness that we want to do whatever he wants us to do. Not to earn anything. Not that he might prosper us. But simply out of love and worship for our Savior. Because of what he did. So don't sell your soul for your own self-made religion. But be willing to give up your life for the one true God our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't say, Lord, look, my Levite. Let's pray. Hey, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. It is a very challenging passage for us, and I do pray that you'd help us, um, Holy Spirit, to you would bring to mind areas of our lives that do not conform with your word, and that you would help us to repent of our sin and to embrace the forgiveness that's in our Savior that we would live overcoming lives, born-again lives, to a life that is commensurate with our walk, that we would walk worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived and died for us. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.